This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 43, Life Insurance and Couples, A Commitment for Life. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your hosts, Mark Willis and Holly Bach, invite you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Not Your Average Financial Podcast. Here in the studio with me today is Katrina Willis. Hello. And Holly Bach. Welcome. Hi, everyone. So we did some studies, and we're going to get into a little uh, semi-recurring series here called The Circle of Life. And uh, one of the things that we started and wanted to talk about right up front was how couples uh, have this regular commitment to each other for life. It's an ongoing regular commitment. Uh, But what we found was one of the big, I guess, gaps in that commitment uh, was life insurance. So we wanted to bring this up straight away as a financial podcast. We'd be remiss if we didn't bring this up. You know, according to a LIMRA study in 2015, 40% of Americans had no life insurance at all. So ten in, uh, 4 in 10 have none at all, and another 19% wow. only have uh, group coverage through work, which is usually a paltry sum, you know, maybe a, a year's salary, which is a good, uh, at least it's something, but it's certainly not enough to cover most families' ongoing expenses they, w- they would have. So that would get added on to the 40. So 40 have yeah. nothing, mm-hmm. then another 19, which yep. is getting us up to 59%, either yep. has nothing or only through yep. work. And of all Americans research, or, uh, surveyed, they said that 70 million uh, projected, 70 million would say that they need more than they currently have in terms of life insurance. Wow. Okay. And I mean, there's a lot of questions that we have come up from couples that we work with. I mean, of course, we work with all all people. You know, we work with individuals, we work with families, but, um, you know, of course, you know, we work with a lot of, of couples and, you know, husband, wife, or whatever yeah. the case may be. And so we get a lot of these kind of same recurring questions where they're just kind of wondering how their life insurance should be structured within their dynamic as a couple. Yep. And so, you know, what what should it look like? And so what we thought we might just kind of do with this episode a little bit is just go through some of those questions. And it might answer some of the questions you had or might shed some light on, um, you know, why your life insurance is set up the way that it is if you're already a client. So um, I know one of the big ones people will always ask or typically will ask a lot is, you know, okay, you know, basic first question, you know, who do we put the policy on? We have a certain amount we want to save, you know, we want to save $1,000 a month. Do we just do 1000 on one or do we do, you know, 500 on each? Yeah, sort of right. That's a good question. And it really comes down to uh, the just the raw math. I mean, are two buckets of money earning the same rate of return going to produce less money than one bucket earning that same rate of return? So I did just a quick financial calculation. And uh, let's say that you had 200 grand in a, in a bucket over, five, uh, over 30 years or earning 5% would earn 864,000 bucks. All right. So if you had 200 grand in one bucket, earning 5% over 30 years, you get $864,000. In scenario two, you got two accounts with 100,000 in each of them, 5% over 30 years. Each one would have $432,000 in it. Multiply that by two and you get 864,000. In other words, it doesn't matter. At the Mm -hmm. end of the day, in terms of just raw growth, compound growth happens 
whether it's 10 buckets or one bucket. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things we know, it's not that black and white as far as this whole process is concerned. Usually couples, if we're talking about um, like a, a man and a woman together, for example, there's going to be a dynamic in play where the underwriting tables are going to be different for the man versus right. the woman. Mm-hmm. Maybe their ages are different. Um, and so then we know there's a lot of other things in play, including the dynamics of the relationship. Sure. What mm-hmm. happens when one person has way more death benefit than the other? What happens when one person is the owner of that policy? They get a lot less sleep, yeah. And the other person doesn't own the policy. You know, I, so I think there's some there's some real big questions here um, about relationship dynamics and how we live together well. Yeah. Well, we talk in this podcast, we talk a lot about cash value accumulation. And that's an awesome thing about these whole life policies that we talk about. And there's a lot of good reasons why. And to be honest, I feel like it's under uh, marketed or under uh, discussed, I guess, or, um, you know, uh, talked about in the public uh, arena, this cash value side of the policy. Um, But, you know, the death benefit has a big part to play as well. There's really good reasons to focus on that. And that's kind of what this episode is all about. I mean, they don't call it death insurance. (laughs) It's called life insurance. As far as I'm aware, insurance companies have never paid money to a dead person. It's always going to the people who are still alive, right? Uh, So when you marry, you make this promise. It's a promise of love. It's a promise to commit to each other. And in many ways, a life insurance policy is also a promise of love. It says that you care enough to protect one another from a financial hardship should the unthinkable happen and one of you might pass before the other. Mm -hmm. So really, just to kind of summarize, I guess, a little bit, uh, what you mentioned is really there's no disadvantage, no real disadvantage to doing two policies instead of one. And so really, it's kind of in your best interest to do two as long as that you're able to kind of afford two policies, because then you're going to be guaranteeing that both people are covered. You know, both people have that death benefit. Um, Doesn't mean it has to be equal. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, if you have that, uh, you know, thousand mm-hmm. dollars I mentioned, it doesn't have to be 500 and 500, it can be 250 and 750, mm-hmm. um, or it can be 600 and 400, you know, just kind of depending upon your situation. But typically, you know, our goal is to make sure that both people are covered. We want there to be a policy on each spouse. So if something did happen, um, you know, there's, there's going to be that coverage in place. Um, and so another question that we'll get sometimes too then, and, and this is kind of Katrina to your point a little bit, where people will say, okay, well, this isn't just about, you know, do we do one policy or two anymore? They're starting to think strategically, right? So they're like, okay, well, I want this thing for cash, you know, want my, my cash accumulation. And so what's going to kind of get me the best bang for my buck in a way? So they start thinking about, oh, well, this is life insurance. That's oven relating to health and age. There's underwriting. So they're like, oh, well, actually, you know, my spouse is 10 years younger. What mm-hmm. if we just put it all on them? Or actually, you know, they're in better health. I'm not in the best of health. You know, what if we just put it all on, on the spouse that's in better health and that sort of thing? So, you know, typically, what are your guys' responses to those types of questions? Oh, golly. Well, Mark and I, we've been through this because our first round of underwriting, one of us got super preferred. And oh, as in you? I, you did? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. I, I, I caught you eating, you know, the, the b- big bowl of greens the night before the physical mm-hmm. exam and everything. Yep. And then the other one got standard on that. First. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I won't deny it. So, you know, we asked that question. We were looking at each other like, well, what do we do? Um, and we ended up, this is what we did back in the early days. We did 500 on each at the very beginning. That was our little tip the toe in the water. Um, and that's been really good for us, even though 
one policy grows a little more aggressive than the other. <laughs> um, that's what we needed for our relationship at that moment. You know what we found is the cash value, uh, and to your question, Holly, the cash value as it was designed by the advisors who set it up for Katrina and I, the cash value is actually accumulated fairly evenly. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe it's a couple hundred dollars more or less. Mm -hmm. I noticed they kind of go back and forth in terms of which cash value is greater. Um, but the death benefit is where the change is, the you know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Katrina's death benefit on that first policy is slightly larger. We're talking maybe 5% or less larger on that first policy. And uh, that's fine. You know, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm okay with getting a bigger death benefit <laughs> <laughs> decades from now, of in, course. It's in your best interest <laughs> to have that. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the point is, you know, this is all about what your goal is when you set it up and what was the advisor's intent. And, uh, you know, so it's, it is important to kind of think through some of those questions, Holly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, and I feel like that's kind of what I've seen play out as well, where it, and this also comes into play with ratings, too, I've noticed, which right. we could probably do a whole other episode on, on sure. that. Um, but, you know, if it does come back where maybe you didn't even get standard, maybe you did get a rating, which just simply means it's, you know, a, a rating slightly below Additional a, an average. concern that the underwriter had that, hey, you've got this background of this diagnosis or that. Mm -hmm. They still give you a policy. They're still offering you approval on a policy, but... They just identified an additional risk. There you go. And and so it's more expensive. Yeah. So the expense goes up a little bit. So, of course, you know, when you tell someone that unfortunate news, it's never good news. You know, we don't enjoy, you know, that. But um, when we do, you know, typically the first question you get is like, okay, well, how, the, how is this going to affect my cash? You know, mm -hmm. how is this going to affect my ability to, to make those purchases and, and have this policy? And, and honestly, when I rerun the numbers with the rating, you know, the cash value actually doesn't to your point, it doesn't change a whole lot. The right. rating doesn't affect your cash value as much as it affects your death benefit. Really, we see the biggest impact, the biggest hit um, is just to the death benefit. We'll mm -hmm. see the death benefit drop down, minimal effect to the cash value though, which is which right. is good because it still helps you uh, um, accomplish your goal with the, the quote unquote banking side of things. But, you know, it does translate to a slightly lower death benefit, but typically, you know, it's not huge provided right. it's just a minor rating. Well, you're, you're, so you're exactly right. Someone says, well, is, am I more expensive to insure with this, you know, background of heart issues or obesity or whatever? And the answer is you're going to put the same dollar amount in. If that's the case, then the other side of the lever is the amount of purchased death benefit that that dollar amount can buy. Mm -hmm. And if we're designing this for cash accumulation, which is typically how our clients come to us, uh, for 99% of it, maybe, uh, we'll simply push down or squeeze down the size of that death benefit to such a point where the cost is relatively what it would have been if you were not rated health-wise. Mm -hmm. There's some things we can't control, but we can certainly adjust the amount of death benefit if we're designing this for cash accumulation, for a sure. A subtext yeah. to that, too, is that you look at the people that can take their condition and improve it. Yeah. So, for example, say you have a condition that is is transient and in the next year or two you know you'll improve you'll lose five pounds you'll eat better stop smoking stop smoking yeah. um the underwriters at many of these companies will come back and look at it and they will some companies have backfunded improve your health rating. your health rating yeah. and then you get a much more efficient you know cash dynamic sure. yeah um in the situations where it's like a chronic illness or there's something else going on that's a little trickier so well Maybe I'll just step in briefly here, and then we um, uh, we can talk some more about it if you want to. But if you're if you're rated, let's just talk about that for a minute. If you have a health rating, if someone sees you as an underwriter, a professional underwriter sees a concern on your health record, isn't that even more reason 
to get life insurance? It's a wake-up call. You know, it might be the last one you'll ever be approved for, not to speak too bluntly, but even more crucially for your fam- family's sake, get that policy even if there's a health rating on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but so, yeah, so yeah. To back to the yeah, original point. Right. Sorry, I was the one that brought up that, you know, bunny trail, so that's my bad. Um, but kind of back to the original point is if there is one of you that's in better health than the other or one that's younger than the other, one is going to be, you know, less expensive than the other. Really, as far as your, your cash dynamic, if you're you're excited about the, the cash accumulation and the that side of the financing side of these policies, there's not, not going to be much of an effect doing two, still doing two policies instead of one. And again, there's still that additional value of making sure both of you are insured. Um, so then kind of the, another question that will come up as well is how much insurance do I need? Oh, yeah. You know, how mm-hmm. much is, how much is enough and how much is too much and how much should I do? Yeah. And how much does my spouse need, you know, in the case of a non-working spouse or something like that? So, um, Mark kind of, you know, what do you walk your clients through when they might ask that question? You're you know, to it's, determine amount? it's so easy for someone to walk into a life insurance salesman's office and think, all right, he or she is going to try to sell me more, way more than I actually need. And I'm here to say that is impossible. It is impossible for you to have more insurance than you actually need. And I can prove it. If anyone here drives a car, have you been able to get more auto insurance than your car is worth? And of course, the answer is no. If I drove a 1989 Ford Pinto and I tried to put a $100,000 auto insurance collision policy on that thing, they'd never approve me for it because, you know, I'd go wreck the car and go get myself a brand new Tesla or something. Uh, No, the truth is you can't have more life insurance than an underwriter is willing to approve you for. Yeah, they won't approve you for more than is Mm -hmm. appropriate. Now, you don't have to get the maximum amount and you can do a smart calculation before you even walk into that insurance agent's office Uh, And you can go right to lifehappens.org. That's www.lifehappens.org. And click on the uh, Calculate Your Needs. There's even an an iPhone app and an Android app here that lets you do this on your phone. Uh, But we ran some quick figures for someone who wanted to have a final expenses for the the burial and had some outstanding debts, uh, had a mortgage to pay off, some kids to send through college. They wanted to cover some income that they would not be able to pay their spouse should they pass away, so replacing their income for about 20 years. Uh, they thought about you know taxes and investment yield. So we run this calculation for folks, and you know it's surprising to a lot of people, but most people have an insurance need of north of $3 million oftentimes if they're young and earning even a reasonable salary. Uh, but that's oftentimes way more than what actually people have. I mean, we talked at the, about the Limra study at the beginning of this episode. So it's sometimes just tremendous how, how underinsured people are. They don't realize the value of their human life uh, from a financial perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then what about non-working spouses, though? So you said that one of the factors in there that you're calculating is you know, income that wouldn't otherwise be there if you were to pass away. Okay, so that right. makes sense. But what if the other spouse doesn't work? Yeah, I mean, if someone's not working, do they still provide a financial benefit? And that's the true lens we have to look at right now is, are they providing a financial benefit to the family? Uh, some people think no, but of course, the answer is yes. Of mm-hmm. course. That, Absolutely. I mean, uh, not only is it daycare and for the kids and watching uh, watching over the children at home, maybe, but also in the later years, uh, having a death benefit for long-term care type uh, situations where you might be able to access the death benefit to pay for that spouse's long-term care need. 
that might be in excess of several hundred thousand dollars right there. You know, the average daycare cost, getting back to kids and daycare, uh, from in the United States anyway, as of 2017, according to Pew Research, uh, was 11,000 bucks a year and up to 20 grand a year, depending on where you live. Yeah. If, if you have an in-home nanny, that's like, you know, average pay is about 15 bucks an hour. That's over 30 grand a year just, yeah. just to take care of somebody. So uh, for kids. So that's, that's the real value of uh, even someone who doesn't have a, quote, paid, paid uh, full-time job. They're a full-time parent. So what you're saying is an underwriter will look at the non-working spouse as having a need, even though they're not generating an active income. There you go. Mm-hmm. So then that calculates into the overall need, and you can use that amount uh, for the non-working spouse. So even though their income is a factor, also the need is a factor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, even with these non-working spouses, I mean, there can still be a need uh, in the millions. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's yeah. not it's not uncommon um, that even a non-working spouse could need a million dollars of life insurance just due to those different factors. If you're really young, that's a lot of years. If you have a really big mortgage, I mean, because that's still a need regardless of which spouse mm-hmm. passes away, that that mm-hmm. mortgage could potentially be paid off and that sort of thing. Um, okay. And so then another one that'll come up is it almost kind of be this like empty nester mentality, mm-hmm. um, when you're talking to a couple and they might say, oh, well, the kids are out of the house or once the kids are on the, out of the house, um, we don't really need life insurance anymore. We only need to have life insurance while we have, you know, little kids that, like you said, we would need to be getting through daycare or we'd be needing to get through college. But once they're, you know, once they're through all that, once they're out, we don't need anything. Yeah. If you're, let's say you're 50 years old, when you become an empty nester, you're likely still to have another decade maybe or more before you retire. And that means a decade's worth of saving uh, and earned income that uh, you wouldn't be giving your spouse should you pass away the day you become an empty nester. So, you know, that's a lot of money plus a lot of savings and compound interest that you need to be taking advantage of with those earned dollars, right? So, you know, sometimes I hear a husband tell me that if he dies, his homemaker wife, uh, for example, can just go find a boyfriend. And to be honest, that's like kind of offensive in and of itself. But I hear that so often, I feel like I need to bring it up here. Sometimes, honestly, she's even sitting right there next to him when he says this. Uh, So, you know, I I just tell her, well, you probably should just go ahead and start looking for that boyfriend right now. (laughs) Right now. (laughs) That hurts. How about uh, someone older, maybe at age 65? Yeah, a 65-year-old couple retiring now will need about $275,000 to cover out-of-pocket health care costs during retirement. And that's according to the study by Fidelity. I just said $275,000. Wow. Is anybody wow. crying tears wow. of blood? <laughs> um, and that, you know, many of the current numbers in the industry here range between two hundred fifty dollars and three hundred k, and that's for 80% of retirees um, for a health care cost burden mm-hmm. yep. Those in last retirement. Year, last couple of years of medical expenses, the heart surgery, the, yeah. Any injury, mm-hmm. you know, if you need help with those activities of daily living, uh, then you're going to be paying for that. Well, you're, you're talking right now about health care only. Um, well, health care and long-term care. I mean, it gets really expensive. And we know our bodies aren't meant to be here full time forever. We start to, you know, break yeah. down and um, and it's, that's more expensive, especially in our current governmental environment. Um, so, yay, guys, the news gets even worse. Are you ready? <laughs> um, because these numbers don't include the cost of those nursing home or home health care numbers, uh, we're looking at 
$40,000 a year on average in the United States for a home health aid annually. But in, in, in Illinois, we're looking at more like $70,000. Um, and, you know, if you're in one of those big states like New York, similar, it'll be between seventy and dollars and k just to have someone in home with you, mm-hmm. taking care of you um, full time. So, and then you're looking at about eighty-five thousand a year for a semi-private room in a nursing home. That's not even a private room. That's just staying with a buddy in a room. Um, hopefully, they're your buddy. <laughs> this yeah. is, uh, anyway. Yep. Um, so yeah, the costs continue to rise across all of the care settings, and as inflation goes up, these numbers also go up. So if you're younger, you need to be thinking bigger numbers than this. Uh, if you prefer the private nursing care room, you'll have to cough up almost a hundred k a year for that private room. Wow. Yeah. Um, At least 70% of people over age 65 will require the long-term care services, and more than 40% will need the nursing home care, according to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. So based on the average cost of a nursing home room and the average length of stay, which is about 2.8 years, you would need over 250 k to cover that single stay. Wow. So that's a quarter million dollars. Lay that on top of the health the health the emergencies. Wow. Yeah. Yep. So we'd have to add those two numbers together. We're talking like half a million dollars. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully, the people that are getting closer, you know, to retirement or, you know, they're, they're edging up towards their 70s, those folks tend to um, look a little more like the 250K. The folks that are, you know, in their 40s, 50s, they're going to be looking at more like half a million. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, many people don't realize that Medicare doesn't pay for your long-term care expenses, which are now increasing at nearly three times the U.S. rate of inflation. So, you know, you think, oh, Medicare will cover my nursing home stay. Well, there's a lot of triggers that have to go into place for you to get some Medicare funding. And if you do get the Medicare funding, it's only a limited amount of funding. So you'll have maybe 100 days max. um, And even then, it'll be a percentage of the overall cost. So you're still walking away with out-of-pocket expenses. And that's a Medicare nursing home. Uh, we need like scary background music when I say that. So, yeah. you know, when you add up the five, the 250000 for the nursing home, the 275000 for the health emergencies and health care and prescription drugs and so forth, I mean, that's literally four times more than what the typical couple even has in total for their retirement savings. Right. So, and at a big picture level, you know, this is about asset protection too, you know, yeah. you can drain your entire savings with health issues, right. you know, after retirement. Um, so you have to be really careful and prepare well for long-term care needs. So, you know, Holly, what is, we're talking about health insurance, uh, health-related issues. We're talking about long-term care issues. What in the world does this have to do with life insurance and couples? Yeah. How, how do we get here, guys? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> From our original topic of conversation. Um, but really, it just has to do with the ways that you can cover these types of expenses. Right. And so, um, you know, we, we wanted to cover at least just three ways that you can cover uh, long term care type expenses and final expenses and that sort of thing. Um, so the first way that you can do it is you can just simply save and invest. You know, so you can just do the traditional, I'm going to save it all up in a piggy bank. When that day comes, I'll break open the piggy bank and, and just pay for all these expenses. And you just kind of have to hope that you have enough left over um, at that time, depending upon how many number, you know, how far you are into retirement and that sort of thing. You just kind of have to hope you have that extra $500,000, mm-hmm. half a yep. million dollars right. sitting around, apparently. Um, and so... 
most people don't even have half a million dollars saved for retirement. All in, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And taking, like you just said, you know, everything all combined isn't even half a million, much less this extra half million on the side for those other things that they're planning on never touching. I mean, that's that just doesn't happen. Strategy one, we just cross it off our list then. Yeah. Okay. What's yeah, strategy number happen. two? <laughs> um, strategy number two is to use a traditional long-term care insurance policy. Um, now, it is kind of interesting because these are starting to get more and more rare and harder and harder to find and qualify for, but traditional long-term care insurance policies do still exist and you can... Um, you can get them. And essentially what it means or how it works is that the uh, insurance company is only going to pay if you hit certain um, requirements, right? Okay. So typically you have to actually go to a nursing home. Sometimes you can get a special rider that would include home health care, but that's going to cost you more. Um, Otherwise, you're going to have to actually go to a nursing home. You're going to have to be there for a certain period of time before they're even going to pay anything to you. And you can, of course, adjust those numbers, but you know, you want a better benefit. It's going to cost you more. You want to, you know, keep things as cheap as possible. It's going to take more requirements for them to start paying anything out to you. Um, and so really they might only be covering though, on top of that, maybe only a hundred to $250 a day. Um, but the typical cost of a nursing home can be anywhere from about 300 to 500, um, per a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, really That's per are month these, per month per person. Yep. Per month per person. Yep. Yep. And so it's like, really, you know, are these policies actually going to be covering all your costs? Well, maybe, maybe not depending upon you know, how, how much need you're needing. Right. Um, so it's just really expensive um, to do it that way and to do the traditional long-term care insurance policy. And it's kind of a use it or lose it type plan as well. So you might pay in all this money to this policy. And if for some reason you are you know lucky enough to never need nursing home care, which, you know, of course, everyone's hoping is the case, um, then you're going to get nothing from it at the end of the day. You're going to pass away um, you know, when the time comes and nothing's ever going to get paid out from that policy. Or of course there's a rider where they will give you your money back, but then it's going to cost you more for the original policy. So it's kind of this, like this game, you know, there's all these different, yeah. Yeah. You're just basically, you're renting it. So, so long-term care insurance. Okay. I get it. There's a, maybe a place for that. If it, if you want to help kind of cover that loss, but Holly, what does this have to do with the life? And we were talking about life insurance on couples. So what's the strategy we can use life insurance to help solve this problem? Yeah, so this might be something that maybe, you know, most people aren't aware of, um, but life insurance policies do come, uh, most of them do come with a rider, and it's actually free. Um, some sort of accelerated death benefit rider, they'll call it all sorts of different things, you know, depending upon the company, but it's an accelerated death benefit rider that can actually kick in should you have anything like that arise, you know, any sort of terminal illness, critical illness, or chronic illness, this rider is going to be able to kick in and help you cover some of those expenses. Um, and so it allows you to access a large portion of your death benefit if you need it for those assisted living or long-term uh, care expenses, they can do it as a lump sum, you know, up to maybe 500000 or a half a million. So mm-hmm. if you have it, there you go, there's your half a million. Um, or it could maybe be a monthly payment if you prefer that, um, which would be, you know, 500000 spread out over a period of time. Um, and so that's more than enough to be able to cover some of these expenses we've been talking or expenses we've been talking about, such as the private nursing home and um, you know whatever you don't spend on those final expenses and you don't spend on the nursing home is just simply going to go to your family 
as a death benefit. So it's really kind of this um, win-win scenario and uh, kind of a, a use it or use it. There you go. <laughs> or, you know, cool. either you get it or your family gets it. It's a, it's a win-win where you have this rider you're not paying anything for. It's free. The insurance company is giving it to you it. for free. Why do they do that? I've, I, I've got a guess. I don't know for sure, but I think that it's because that when people were getting to that point, they were selling their life insurance death benefits to strangers in exchange for a lump sum for nursing home expenses, or maybe the, you know, maybe it was some other reason. Uh, and rather than getting into life settlements and viaticals, I think the insurance companies were more interested in letting that person continue to own it all the way through to their passing. And that was a simple and cost effective way for them to give mm-hmm. an advance of that death benefit. So, you know, and again, I think it's kind of cool to, to at least mention that that lump sum that they pay as an advance on your death benefit might go to long-term care, might go to, you know, a life-saving surgery, or shoot, buy yourself a yacht and spend the last six months of your life, you know, living it up. Yeah, it doesn't know? have to. And that's yeah. another thing that's kind of cool about it is sometimes with the long-term care policies, it'll be um, set up so that their their check has to go to the nursing home. Right. Or, you know, their check has to be used for those expenses, whereas with the um, riders on the life insurance policies, they don't care what you use it for. They just mail you the check and say, have fun, <laughs> you sure. know? Yeah. And so you can't, you know, if it, depending upon the diagnosis and what you need it for, don't be irresponsible with money you need for health expenses. But, you know, if there is a situation where you, you could use that money to go on some sort of final uh, trip, go for it, you know, or if you needed to cover your medical expenses so that you're not leaving your family a huge pile of debt when you pass away, sure. then do that too, you know. And so it's just kind of cool because it's, you know, either you use it for long-term care if it comes up, or if you're, you know, blessed enough that you never have to worry about health issues in your later years, then you can use it for retirement needs, or you're going to leave it to your family. It's like someone's going to get the money. A lot of people also tell me, hey, Mark, I don't need insurance anymore now that we don't have a mortgage. And so that's another one I hear quite often. Uh, now that we don't have this mortgage, and I always sort of question that uh, assumption. I say, well, does your house, does your paid-off house, pay you a salary if your working spouse passes away? Does your paid-off house pay you a salary if your working spouse passes away? I don't think so. Mine doesn't. Uh, if you pay your mortgage off when you're say maybe 55 years old, uh, you know these are also the usually anyway the highest earning years of your life, and you might have 10 or 15 more years left to earn that high salary. Let's say you're earning at that point $175,000 at your age 55, and maybe you pass away with that paid off house. Your surviving spouse would lose out on $1.75 million. That's $175,000 a year times 10 years. And they'd be unable to get the money out of the walls of the house unless they could convince a bank to give them a new mortgage. What non-working spouse is going to get a mortgage after their working spouse passes away? Mm-hmm. It's no not income. quite a gift. Yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. Katrina, what about any other thoughts there? Yeah, so I think what we've covered here is that the effects of having a bank on yourself policy on each individual in the couple has many ramifications beyond numbers, beyond health ratings. It affects your long-term walking together as you go through the years, um, whether it has to do with real estate or taking loans equally or death benefit need or long-term care needs. I mean, the, the list goes on. So there's an advantage to doing two policies and the cost really isn't. Um, you don't have a greater cost of insurance for doing that. Sure. Yeah, unless we have a real significant reason not to, we like to start at least uh, one policy on each of the spouses, whether they're working or not. 
If one person has a, a tremendous health issue, maybe even more reason, right? Like we mentioned, to put that life insurance in effect so that, you know, we get that coverage for life. And in some cases, we might choose to put more on the healthier spouse to accumulate more wealth and so forth. But we need to be sure that both are providing for each other. That's what uh, the promise to care and support and love each other was all about in the first place, right? Uh, so, you know, how many are looking down from heaven watching their loved ones suffer financially? If we've got 70 million Americans that are aware that they need more insurance, how many more actually need more, right? Um, how many wish they could go back and purchase life insurance to ensure their family would not only survive without them, but would actually get a pay raise when they passed away? Mm-hmm. That's the big thing I, f- I feel we've, we've maybe missed as a financial services industry. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like so often, you know, the death benefit can't be, um, you know, undervalued. And I feel like oftentimes it can, you know, when working in the way that we're working, where we're talking about the cash value and everything's so cash value focused. Um, I feel like the death benefit really can't be overlooked because it just becomes this incredible gift to whomever um, is the beneficiary of that policy. I mean, it can be their liquidity for emergencies. It can become this emergency fund for them because, you know, the, the bumps of life aren't going to stop <laughs> for your family just because you passed away. That's not like the last final bump and then everything's smooth sailing, you know? I mean, how many times have you heard about the people that just get hit by one thing and then another and another? Right. Um, you know, it's like you hear about the people where it's like their, you know, grandma passes away and then the next thing job you know, it's the, you know, they lose medical. a job and it's like all this different stuff. And, you know, so it's, um, it's very real. So to be able to leave that gift, that's going to kind of help them ride those waves is great. And then, um, you know, of course, having that death benefit is if someone passes away too soon, um, if it really is something tragic and unexpected, I mean, that's when it just makes such a difference because people would say, oh, well, I mean, they were only, you know, they were young, they were in their forties. Like, you know, we're actually kind of surprised we even had any life insurance or, you know, and wow, it's made such a difference. I didn't even realize. So um, definitely think that that can't be undervalued. And especially in that couple dynamic, making sure that, you know, you're kind of taking care of each other. Um, But yeah, so that is our first episode of our kind of little next mini series here we're going to be launching into for the Circle of Life. So just want to thank you all for joining us for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.